as you know, I grew up in the 90s, early 2000s, and I'm convinced that my generation, our generation, has some of the best kids' movies. You agree? Disagree? Yeah, I, I certainly. I, best kids' movies. Something happened in the collaboration room in those early Disney Pixar days that created some of the best kids' movies on the planet. And a lot of the best movies have the same puzzle piece that ties them together. Friendship. Think of three of my favorites. Here's one. What's not to like about Toy Story? You have these two enemies, Buzz and Woody, because Buzz is the new toy in town. He becomes Andy's favorite, and Woody hates him for it. And you've got Tim Allen and Tom Hanks playing, doing the voiceover for each of them. And then because of this battle that they get, and they end up at Andy's evil neighbor's house, they're in prison, and they develop this friendship trying to escape. The story of enemies becoming friends. It's a great account, isn't it? Or how about this? Finding Nemo. Marlon and Dory. Can you imagine two more unexpected friends? You have, you have Marlon, who's like this overprotective parent combined with this like angry type A grandpa that like don't walk on my lawn type, right? And then you have Dory, who's one of the nicest, happiest fish you've ever met, except she can't remember anything. But they're united in finding Marlon's kidnapped son, and they go all the way to P. Sherman 42, Wallaby Way, Sydney, by just keep swimming, just keep swim. Nobody's going to say the quote with me. Thank you. I appreciate it. Yeah, but doesn't, doesn't it have to be like someone that you have There's a lot of things that in that movie that I don't have time to talk about, so right. that's okay. <laughs> Otherwise, we'd be here all day and just be recounting the plot line for Finding Nemo, and if that was the case, we should just watch it instead. So... <laughs> But it's a great lesson, perseverance and endurance and friendship. But my favorite Disney Pixar movie of all time, Monsters, Inc. It's, it's great. I mean, you have Mike, you have Sully, you have these two guys that are completely opposite, but yet they're best friends, they scare for a living, and then they uncover the sinister plot that's going to destroy their world, and they develop this friendship with this little girl named Boo that changes their world forever. And it's filled with everyone's favorite quote. I'm always watching, Wazowski. <laughs> always watching. All right, that's a good one. Was that okay? You know what's sad is that's the only voice imitation I can actually do um, is Roz. So that's embarrassing. But what's creatively uncreative about those three movies, they have the same plot line. You have these unexpected friends who build a relationship and persevere through shared adversity. It's the same plot line in all three movies. And what connects me, what connects us with those three movies is don't we want the same thing? Don't we want a friend like Sully? Don't we want a friend like Buzz or Woody? Don't we want a friend like Dory? We do. We want those deep, unconditional, meaningful relationships. And when we don't have it, we feel like something's missing. But those relationships, they take time to develop, don't they? Shared adversity, a shared purpose, a shared identity, they take time to develop. See, relationships begin when we have the same hobby, 
See, if you walk in the door on Monday night, we start talking, uh, and I discover that you like coffee, ice cream, Swedish fish, ultimate frisbee, or downhill skiing, we're going to be instant friends, right? But that's the, that's the beginning of friendship. The next level would be shared experience. When we go to the Up North Retreat together, we go to Mexico together, when we play softball together, when you go to that girls' event on Saturday that I can't even pronounce, when you do that, that's shared experience. That's the next level. But the, the third level, even deeper, would be a, a common purpose, a, a common identity. And I'm convinced the deepest way to build a friendship is through shared adversity. As I look back at my life, the, the most meaningful relationships that I have are the brothers, the sisters that I've walked through trials with. Even as I think about the answer to our table talk question, the most meaningful relationships that I've had in my life are people that I've gone through adversity with. But it's kind of hard to, to manufacture adversity, isn't it? At least most of us don't try to do that, do we? But think about the Christian life. Think about the young adult family. Think about our shared purpose, our shared identity. We would identify, I would identify our purpose as enjoying God by glorifying God. And maybe we could even identify a shared adversity that we find ourselves in the same spiritual battle, fighting the same spiritual enemy. We have the same purpose. We have the same adversity. In that way, shouldn't young adults be the place where we find real deep friendship, real deep community? It should be. That's not always the case, though, is it? I'm convinced that our text tonight gives us a picture on how deep friendship, real friendship, connects to the adversity of the battles that we face against our spiritual enemies. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Exodus chapter 17. We're actually going backwards. Two weeks ago, we were at Sinai, and now we're going back to Exodus 17. This is a place called Rephidim. Israel camped out there. It was a, a bit of a walk from Sinai. We don't know exactly where it was. A lot of grumbling happened. Now, the truth is that a lot of grumbling happened everywhere because the Israelites were always grumbling, but they grumbled in Rephidim because they didn't have water, and then God miraculously provided water out of the rock. But they find themselves in the midst of their first battle in, in Exodus 17, post the Exodus, post the Red Sea. And they meet up with this nation called the Amalekites. Okay, quick, quick biblical history lesson. The Jews, the Israelites, they're descendants of what one man? Jacob. Jacob, right? Jacob and his 12 sons form the 12 tribes. That's the Israelites. Who is Jacob's twin brother? Esau, right? Esau's grandson, his name, one of his grandsons, his name was Amalek. Amalek was the father, the patriarch of the Amalekites. And that's who we find as Israel's enemy in our text today was a descendant of Esau called the Amalekites. They didn't have a very good reputation, they were desert pirates. They were a nomadic tribe, a nation, really. And here's how they would survive. They would survive by attacking other people groups, stealing their stuff, and selling it for profit. So did anyone like the Amalekites? No. No one liked the Amalekites. What I think probably happened is the Amalekites heard that this large, defenseless nation was wandering in the wilderness, and they just plundered the Egyptians. The Egyptians had just like given them gold on their way out of Egypt, and they heard, oh, here's a nation with a bunch of gold that doesn't know how to defend themselves. Easy money. We're going to go attack them, and they do what every pirate does. They knock on the door of the camp, and they say, 
Give us your money by tomorrow or we're going to attack you. Right? The same thing happens today. There's nothing new under the sun. So Moses has 24 hours to prepare his ex-slaves for their first battle. So follow along with me in our text. Exodus 17. I'm going to start in verse 8. I'm just going to read our whole text, the rest of the chapter. I'm reading out of the ESV. Then Amalek came and fought with Israel at Rephidim. So Moses said to Joshua, choose for us men and go out and fight with Amalek. Tomorrow I'll stand on top of the hill with the staff of God in my hand. So Joshua did as Moses told him and fought with Amalek while Moses, Aaron, and Hur went to the top of the hill. Whenever Moses held up his hand, Israel prevailed. Whenever he lowered his hand, Amalek prevailed. But Moses' hands grew weary. So they took a stone, they put it under him. He sat on it while Aaron and Hur held up his hands, one on one side, the other on the other side. So his hands were steady until the going down of the sun. And Joshua overwhelmed Amalek and his people with the sword. Then the Lord said to Moses, write this as a memorial in a book, recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. And Moses built an altar and called the name of it, the Lord is my banner, saying a hand upon the throne of the Lord. The Lord will have war with Amalek from generation to generation. If you do a concordant search, you won't find the name Joshua, at least this character, Joshua, anywhere before Exodus 17. This is the first time that we encounter Joshua by name. He's Moses' right-hand man. He's the successor, the leadership of the nation. And here, he's the commander. So Moses comes to Joshua with some strict commands. It's time to put together an army. Now put yourself in Joshua's shoes for a second. You're looking at a nation maybe of a, a million, two million people. They're ex-slaves. They have no battle training. They have no education. They've never gone to basic training. And Moses says, make for yourself an army. That's a tall order, isn't it? It's not like Moses uh, and Joshua. It's not like they could go drive down to Zingers and Flingers and get a bunch of ammunition. That's not how it worked, right? They didn't have that. They only had what was handmade, which probably wasn't of that much quality anyway. This is not what you'd call a winning strategy. And that's why the Amalekites were eager to attack the Israelites. But Joshua knew that he had something that the, Israelite, or that the Amalekites didn't have. He had the mighty hand of God on his side. And ultimately, we know that the Israelites, through the power of God, prevailed. But how the battle worked was a bit intriguing, isn't it? <laughs> Moses goes up to the top of the hill. And he holds in his hand the staff. You know the staff. It's the staff that, that turned the Nile into blood. It's the staff that parted the Red Sea. It's, it's the staff that turned into a snake. It's the staff, that, the staff that God used over and over again to accomplish the, the plagues in, in Egypt. That staff. As long as that staff is high in the air, Israel, they, they prevailed. But as long as that staff came down then Israel was being defeated. A couple of us were talking at the coffee bar before, and we just wondered, what would that have been like? Like, how long did Moses hold the staff on the ground? Like, how much defeat did he let happen before that staff went there? I don't know, but it's interesting to think about. But Aaron and Hur, two other men who supported Moses, they came alongside of him. They, they sat him on a rock so that they could stand next to him. They could hold either hand up in the air so that his hands were in the air all day. Now, I don't know the last time that you tried to hold something over your head for more than like a minute, but it's really hard. It's exhausting. I actually thought as an example that I could have Austin Solomon come up to the front. And Austin, just for the rest of the sermon, if you could just 
stand like this. So that, I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, it'd be exhausting. It'd be exhausting, which is why he needed his two right-hand men to hold up the staff, hold up his arms with him. And at the end of the day, Israel won. And Moses built an altar. The altar was called, the Lord is my banner. The Hebrew in that last section is a little bit complex. Here's what I think it means. The word banner, it's not like a cloth banner like we think of it. It's actually like a military pole. It's a play on words with the staff. Here's what Moses is saying. The Lord is my banner. In other words, God is our warrior. He fights on our behalf. It connects the idea of the word throne there in that last paragraph. God is here with us. God is fighting for us. A picture of the staff. God fighting on behalf of his people. Now, when I read this text, I, I ask you the why question. God, why in the world did you have the Israelites win the battle in this way? It doesn't make any sense. To me, it makes way more sense just to have Joshua go out and fight the Amalekites. Why do you need to go through all this trouble to have Moses wasting an entire day just standing there like this? It doesn't make sense. It's a reminder to me that we don't always know why. God's ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. God is infinitely greater and more knowledgeable and holier than us. We don't have to know the why to any command of God in order to obey it. Now, I'm thankful that God often gives us the why. We often see in Scripture why God's way is not just the right way, it's the best way, but we don't know that unilaterally. But we don't get to pick and choose God's commands based on the ones that we understand that make sense to us. This text is a reminder that Sometimes we don't know why. But tonight, I still want us to ask the why question and see where it leads us. Why in the world would God go through that extra step with the staff? Well, I'm convinced that God wants to teach the Israelites, wants to teach you and I a very valuable lesson in dependence. Because if if God wouldn't have used the staff, if, if Joshua would have just gone out and fought against the Amalekites on his own, it would have been easy for Joshua and all of his fighting men to say, look at us. We're so strong. We won the battle. But that staff going up and even coming down for a minute or two was a reminder to Moses, to Joshua, to Aaron, to her, to the entire army that they weren't winning that battle on their own. But it's also a picture of the dependence that we have, that they have on one another. That even Moses wasn't strong enough <laughs> to hold that staff all day by himself. In the battles that we face, we're incredibly dependent both on God and on one another. And often God uses his people to accomplish his purposes. So that's our big idea tonight. God uses his people to accomplish his purposes. God, in our text, God used Moses. God used Joshua in our particular. God used Aaron and her to hold up Moses' arms to accomplish his purpose in the battle. Now, instead of focusing on what happened on the battlefield, I want us, with the rest of our time, to focus on what happened on the top of the hill, both from Moses' perspective and from Aaron and her's perspective. As you know, last week we celebrated one of America's favorite holidays, America's birthday, the 4th of July. I love the 4th of July. Smoked meat, watermelon, 
fireworks, hanging out in the sun. It's a great, it's a great day. And it's a reminder of what God's given us in our country. We have a, a freedom in our country today that people throughout history couldn't even dream of possessing. And that's a gift that God's given to us, a gift that I, that we, often take for granted. The freedom that we have in our, our country, it's an incredible gift. And as Christ followers, the freedom, the autonomy that we have, they're, they're good things, but they're not our greatest good, are they? And I think sometimes, because of the gift of, of freedom and autonomy, sometimes we can make that an ultimate thing. And sometimes that freedom can sneak into our Christian life. And we think things like, I have my personal relationship with Jesus, and I have my quiet time, and no one is able to tell me what I want to do because I have freedom. Yes, we have freedom, but we actually have a higher obligation. We have a higher call. We have a greater allegiance, greater allegiance to our King Jesus. We have a greater loyalty to Him and to one another rather than just to my freedom. See, Christianity is not independence, it's interdependent. And together, we need to prioritize interdependence over independence. That means sometimes I, we need to let go of the freedom that we have in order to hold up one another's arms as we fight the spiritual battle that rages around us. Just consider one of the greatest tensions of the Christian life. I can say no to every sin, but at the same time, I'm not above giving in to any sin. I can say no to every sin. I'm not above giving in to any sin. That's a tension, isn't it? Think of 2 Peter 1.3. God's given us everything that we need to live a life of godliness. Everything we need. Think of 1 Corinthians 10 verse 13, that God's given us everything we need to fight a spiritual battle. He's not going to let us be tempted beyond what we can bear, but in every way, he'll provide a way for us to stand up under the temptation. Think of what Paul wrote in Colossians 2 verse 15. I'm paraphrasing that Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities of this world through the cross. Satan's defeated. Sin's been defeated. And we all start to cheer. We get excited until we look in the mirror. <laughs> and I ask the same why were you facing that same temptation again? Why do you have that desire again? Why did you give in to that sin again? I thought you were better than that. Am I the only person that has those conversations with myself? I hope not. If sin has been defeated, then why am I still fighting sin? Well, because the power of sin has been defeated at the cross, yet we still fight against the presence of sin, both here and here. I appreciate perspective of the author of Hebrews in Hebrews 12, verses 3 and 4. It says this, Consider him, Jesus, who endured from sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. Who shed his blood in resisting sin. Jesus, yeah. 
Jesus resisted the temptation to bypass Calvary, and he went to the cross for you and for me, enduring the most incredible pain imaginable so that we could find forgiveness and redemption and reconciliation. Jesus shed his blood for us. When we think about endurance, when we think about perseverance in the midst of suffering, in the midst of opposition, the best example is Jesus, who resisted temptation to the point of shedding his blood. But the point the author of Hebrews is making is this. I'm guessing that you, I'm guessing that I, haven't fought against temptation so hard that I shed my own blood. Maybe you have, I haven't. He's reminding us that there's a chance we can level up in our fight against temptation. There's, there's a chance that we can fight harder. God's given us everything that we need to battle against temptation. He's given us every tool that we need, but often you and I forget that one of the greatest tools that God has given us is sitting right next to you tonight. One of the greatest tools God has given us to fight our spiritual battle is one another. And some of you are like Moses, and you're standing there. You're, you're dripping sweat. You're exhausted. Your arms are trembling because you've been trying for days, for weeks, for months to fight against temptation by yourself. And you're wondering why you're losing the battle. You're wondering why you can't seem to get victory over that sin struggle. It's because you haven't invited somebody to hold up your arms. It's because you're trying to do life by yourself. The Christian race, the Christian life was never meant to be done in isolation. We need each other. Maybe an illustration will help. One of my favorite events in track and field is called the steeplechase. It's a cool event. It's uh, 3,000 meters kind of around the track, though it shortens the track. There's 28 barriers. There's seven water jumps. The water is generally at least to the, the runner's knees, um, and it's a solo sport. It's not a relay. They, they run it by themselves, and it's a cool event. It originated in Ireland, where runners or horses would actually race from steeple to steeple. That's why it's called the steeplechase. You can imagine if you're running in Ireland, you're jumping over streams, you're jumping over these rock walls that divide all the farms, and it was a race. And they made it an Olympic event at the inaugural modern Olympics in 1900 in Paris. Actually, the world record was just set um, in June. A 20-year record was shattered by an Ethiopian runner who ran the steeplechase in seven minutes and 52 seconds. That's, that's very fast because some of you would have a hard time running one kilometer in eight minutes. He ran three kilometers with a bunch of barriers in eight minutes. Um, impressive. But it's a solo sport. Now, compare the steeplechase to, there's a more modern picture. It's exhausting. Compare the steeplechase to uh, a Tough mutter. Back in 2018, Hannah and I, oh, the picture stole my thunder, cool. Uh, back in 2018, Hannah uh, and I were just dating. We weren't yet engaged yet. And even though we'd been together for less than a year, she figured out something really quickly, that if I was to ever do a Tough mutter, that she'd have to give it to me as a gift. So she did. She surprised me for my birthday. She gave me a ticket to run in a Tough mutter, And I did everything that I could to look surprised and glad and excited. 
But inside, I was like, this is the last thing that I want to do. I do not want to do a Tough Mudder. <laughs> so the day came. It was five years ago, almost to the day. And um, I loved it. We had a blast. You can put up that picture one more time for me, Alex. Um, this is one of those pictures I look at like, yeah, that is my wife. She's three times tougher than me and four times more attractive. So um, <laughs> I'm done before I creep anyone out anymore. But here's the deal with the Tough Mudder. You can't do it by yourself. If you try to do it by yourself, you're going to fail. You need a team, either your family, your friends, or you need a random stranger that's literally going to lift you up over the muddy obstacle so that you can finish the race. The steeplechase, it's a solo sport. A Tough Mudder, you can't do it alone. See, Christianity looks a lot more like a Tough Mudder than it does a steeplechase. God did not create the Christian race for us to do in isolation. Yet many of us are thinking, I'm better off alone. I don't need help. And maybe that'll work for a day or a week or a month. It's not going to work long term. You're not going to run your best race by yourself. It's okay to ask for help because we all need it. We all need someone to help hold up our arms in the race. Don't be afraid to ask for help. Stop pretending that you can't run the race alone. Have the courage to share, I'm struggling with temptation and I can't seem to overcome it alone. When you're feeling apathetic, text the, that friend and ask for accountability. When you're struggling with grief, make that phone call and pray with your brother or your sister. When you're dealing with anxiety, turn on the light, share those anxious thoughts with someone that you trust. When you get home from work, and you just had a terrible day, instead of turning to the bottle of wine to take the edge off, call a friend, pray together, find a different solution. When you're on your phone at 11 o'clock at night, and that temptation, that desire to go to that website that you know you shouldn't go to comes up, click the phone icon, call your friend, confess the temptation, pray together, and take your phone and throw it out the window. We need to ask for help. Like Moses, we need an Aaron and a Hur in our life that can hold up our arms as we run the race. It's humbling, but it's essential to win our spiritual battle. So I want us to turn our attention away from, from Moses, what it's like to have someone help us. I want to think what it might be like to be Aaron or Hur, to be the one who's holding up others' arms. And that's where our principles come from tonight. If we're going to be that kind of support to one another, then we have to prioritize. Um, prioritizing interdependence isn't comfortable. That's our first principle tonight. Prioritizing interdependence isn't comfortable. Sure, being Moses wasn't very comfortable, was it? I mean, you're standing there with your arms up all day. Not comfortable. I can think of a thousand things I would rather be doing for a day. But you could say the same thing about Aaron and her being there holding up his arms next to him for an entire day. Well, that's not very comfortable either. I can think of a thousand things I'd rather be doing than them. And they didn't get the glory, yet they still shared most of the burden. Like Aaron and her, if you're going to hold up the arms of a friend, it's not going to be comfortable. Have you ever visited a friend in the hospital? It's not comfortable. It's hard. When was the last time that you were grieving with a friend, family member? It's hard. 
See, it's easier just to avoid the visitation and avoid the funeral and not see that friend that's grieving for a week or two because when we see them, we enter into the grief with them. Our heart hurts with them. It's easier to avoid it, isn't it? But entering into that pain, it's not comfortable. When a, a friend confesses self-harm, entering into those conversations and taking care of them, it's, it's not comfortable. It's hard. When a, a friend confesses a temptation, confesses a sin struggle, it's a lot easier not to ask the hard questions, not to try to dig to the bottom of it, not to hold them accountable. Prioritizing interdependence, it's rarely comfortable. Number two, prioritizing interdependence, it's not convenient. Prioritizing interdependence isn't convenient. A crisis rarely happens at a convenient time. Nine o'clock at night, your cell phone goes off. It's a friend, you know they're in crisis. What do you do? Look at the phone and say, ah, let's just go to voicemail. Or do we answer the phone and take a half an hour or 45 minutes to work through the crisis with them? I try to get uh, coffee or breakfast with my accountability partner every other week. Sometimes it's every third week. But to make our schedules work with our families, uh, we get together at 6 a.m. And I hate mornings. I loathe mornings. Even with the sure and certain hope of caffeine, I still hate mornings. <laughs> Yet, that's what it takes for us to still have that sort of uh, relationship. When a friend is fighting against sin, fighting in the trenches with them, it's not just a, a one-day thing. It's a, a continual fight together. That's number three, prioritizing interdependence. It's not cheap. Being Moses and Aaron, it's costly. If you want to hold up Moses' arms, it's going to cost you your time. It's going to cost you energy. It's going to cost money. It's going to cost resources. It requires loyalty. It requires this attitude of, I'm going to do whatever it takes to hold up your arms so that we can win this battle. But this type of a relationship, it, it's not a checklist. It's not a, you know... A, I sent my Bible verse of the day, so now I'm good. No, this type of relationship is committed to long haul. We don't just do our time. We fight until the battle is won. One of the best ways we can hold up the arms of others in our life is to pray. One of the best things we can do. To pray for our friends, to pray for our brothers, our sisters, to pray for the people in our small group, our leaders, praying that God will give her the strength to resist temptation, praying that God will fill them with the Spirit, praying that God will make them look more like Jesus today, praying that we'll grow in righteousness, continually praying for one another and lifting up one another in prayer. It's one of the best ways we can hold up our arms. Now, some of us might struggle with being Moses. We're prideful, and we... We hesitate letting people into our life because we're broken and we don't want to admit that we have flaws. Now, there's others of us that struggle with being Aaron and her and we're selfish and we'd rather not give up our time and our energy to somebody else. Now, I'm trusting tonight that you have the self-awareness to know which camp you're in because obviously the application is very different, isn't it? But I do know some of you walked in the door tonight 
And your highest desire was for a friend like this, a friend that holds up your arms no matter what. And you probably even came to young adults looking for it. And maybe you've been here a week or a month or two years, and still you don't have that Mike or Sully in your life. And you're lonely. And even a talk like this brings up pain, wanting something that you don't have. If that's you tonight, I just have a couple, a couple thoughts. First, God knows what you need, but he does not always give you what you want. And if you're longing for that relationship, look to him first, rely on him first, depend on him first. Second, if you're looking for that type of friend tonight, take a look around the room. Take a look around your life and your sphere. That person might already be in your life. You just might not realize it yet. Sometimes God fills this need in fairly unconventional ways. It might not be what you expect. And third, if you're really longing for that Aaron, that her in your life, someone to hold up your arms, step one is trying to be an Aaron and her to someone else before we start looking for that in our lives. Is this easy? No, it's not. But it's the only way that we can run the race. It's the only way that we can win the battle that we have in front of us. We need each other. And that's one of my favorite things about young adults is it provides the context, the space, not just to connect, not just to find friends, not just to have shared experiences because we like the same thing, but to grow through the same purpose and the same adversity, glorifying God while facing the same spiritual battle. So as we wrap up tonight, I'm going to invite up my friend Cole, um, and Cole's going to share a little bit of a story, a testimony uh, from his, his life recently, kind of fits in with young adults, something that, um, that kind of ties the bow on our message. So I realized something. If you're going to talk, you probably need a microphone. Well, I do want to get this on the live stream, so I'm just going to awkwardly tread water until Alex runs up to the front of the stage with our microphone. So everyone say hi, Cole. How long have uh, you and your wife... Who said that? That was really ingenious, by the way. Thanks, Susan. Um, How long have you and your wife, Katie, been coming to Young Adults? Yeah, so we actually... It'll be two years in in August, so... Okay. Can we throw a party for your two-year anniversary? I would host at my house if you guys are willing to come. Did you hear that? I'm serious. I mean, I'll do anything to have people come to our house. So you actually, I don't know if my wife would be in agreement, but. <laughs> She's working tonight, so, you know. You she doesn't have to know over. until the yeah, day, right? Exactly. Um, this, has, this has nothing to do with, uh, with our talk, but you have a new member of your family that we should have put a picture up. Who's the new member of your family? So uh, we got a chocolate lab named Fisher, so. So whoever's going to the, Bible, the men's Bible study tomorrow will be able to hang out with him. So, Well, we're all going to men's study tomorrow. So. <laughs> right? <laughs> well, why don't you tell us a little bit of, uh, of your story that God's put on your heart tonight? Yeah, so, yeah, this, is, this really hits home to me. Um, kind of going back to when I actually started following Jesus is when I had a friend who was willing to, to be, um, be like that to uh, Moses to lift up the staff, right? Yeah. Um, and we started going through Romans back in high school, and um, 
just the fact that he's willing to hang out with me day in and day out and, and even be there with me um, through a lot of my inadequacies um, works so much in my life. And uh, he was, he's really been an encouragement all the way through college. And, and even into college, I had, um, I had a Bible study I was involved in, and it was a men's Bible study, and that really helped me walk with the Lord and um, really pushed me to, to share my faith with other people. And then coming out of college, I'm sure a lot of you guys may have experienced this as well, is, you know, you leave college and then you kind of, you're like, well, what do I do now? You know, and so I, for really, well, 2020 until January, you know, I was involved in Highland and, and I had moved around a little bit before this. Um, I was really in a lull in my faith. Um, a lot of things that I've, you know, dealt with is, you know, just finding a lot of uh, security in, in my own wealth and in seeking after business ideas and um, finding finding um, joy in sports and whatever it is other than Christ. And that's been really, uh, the reason why that has been is because I haven't had that community. And so I knew, like, you know, I was like, I need that. And what's been interesting is I just, I was kind of just waiting around for someone to just like invite me to a Bible study and not a knock on anyone, but that just didn't happen. And so I was like, well, if something's going to happen, I'm going to have to just open up something at my house. And, um, so, so we started hosting, uh, started having a Bible study at my place and, um, yeah, it's been, it's been really encouraging. It's been really cool because, um, you know, it's open to, to any guy really. And it's been so cool because we have people from all different walks in their life, people that just came to know Jesus, others that have, have a whole lot of life experience. And um, that's, yeah, it's, it's been really good. And, you know, I, for me, it's been really good because, um, you know, I've had unconfessed sins and, you know, I was finally able to be vulnerable enough because I got to know the guys and I knew that they had my best intentions in mind. And um, that's freed me up a lot. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, you know, the other part of this, this study is that it's like, I've seen a lot of my friends walk away from the Lord leaving college, and, and I knew that the Lord had really put that in my heart to, you know, how can I be an example, and how, how can I be an encouragement, and how can I just do that? And for me, it was simply as simple enough as, you know, opening up my, my house to, to friends, and, that, and that's all I'm doing. I'm just opening up my house, and we're going through um, a Bible study. And so um, I knew that I, I didn't want to see that with guys that I had, I had seen hmm. come to know Christ. I mean, yeah. the amount of guys that we've seen come to know Christ the past year has been cool. And I just didn't want to see them experience that joy in Christ and then just be, like, left to, to wait in the rain, you know. And, and, I, and I've seen that joy of, of seeing new believers join a Bible study and, and study week in and week out with their friends. That's awesome. Cole, thank you so much for sharing that. Um, I... I love that you came to Highland, you came to Young Adults, and you still feel like there was something missing, that you'd grown tremendously in, in your life through Bible study, just through working through Scripture in a small group. Um, and you'd waited a while for us yeah. to announce it, and we never did. Yeah. That's just not part of what we do on Monday nights, right? Um, so then you said, okay, well then, I'm doing it. Um, how much did me... Brian, Bianca, our staff have to do with this study? Uh, well, they didn't have anything to do with that. And <laughs> I, what I would say, yeah, it, it's all good. But, but here's the thing. I think oftentimes... You don't have to caveat that. Yeah. I think that's awesome. We had nothing yeah. to do with it. Well, and I think that's, that's kind of what happens with a lot of us, right? We, we kind of just sit around and we kind of just follow. You know, and you get a lot of churches that just do that where you have people that they're just attenders, right? 
And, and we are missing out on so much joy in stepping out in mm. faith. And, and for me, it was, it's, it's not, like there's a lot more faithful things I could be doing. But we oftentimes do that where we just sit and wait, you know, and kind of mm. just follow people. But God has given us so much joy. And, and you see that throughout the Gospels, right? I mean, Paul's encouragement and his, his great joy through the, even the letters he's writing. These are, these are believers, but he's writing his letter to them, and, and they are fulfilling his joy. Yeah. And so we're missing out on that, guys, when we're, mm-hmm. we're kind of sitting, letting for someone else to do something. And, and Sam can, can agree with this. Like, you, man, your greatest joy is when other people are stepping out on their faith, and they're, they're saying, I'm finding true joy in Christ. Being really in this kind of this battlefield with your brothers and, and with people in general that, so, yeah, yeah. Cole, thank you so much. Like, let's thank Cole for sharing a bit of his story tonight. Thank you. <laughs> I love that. I, it made my day when I found out that Cole saw a need, met a need, and we knew nothing about it. Um, and Cole's not the only one who has the empowerment to do that. So do you. That if you see a need in your own spiritual life, don't sit around waiting for somebody else to meet it. Do what you need to do uh, to take that step. So let me pray. Uh, Father, um, thanks for a great night in Exodus chapter 17. Um, and thanks even for Cole and his willingness to share a bit of what you've been doing in his life, how you've helped develop and create a community that's been encouraging to him. And maybe there's some here tonight that just need that gentle nudge to take that step of faith, uh, to initiate, to create something, to, to initiate a conversation, um, anything. Uh, to begin that community that they need. Give them the courage this week um, to have those conversations. Maybe it means letting somebody into their life in a a challenging way, having a conversation that they've been putting off for a while. Um, Or maybe it means uh, making that phone call, that text, reaching out to that that friend uh, to encourage them. Whatever it is, help each of us take the next step in our walk with Christ this week. Uh, In Jesus' name, amen.